So, we're joining with churches around the world, committing ourselves to prayer for the persecuted church today. And in a way, we're seeking to compensate for the fact that suffering is not evenly distributed around the world, is it? Do you follow what I'm saying there? Yes. We have it pretty easy, don't we? The suffering is never evenly distributed. So the least we can do is commit some time to prayer for those people who are in the line of fire. Uh, we don't have anywhere near the, the burden of suffering that Christians endure in places like Afghanistan. That's listed as number one. North Korea is in second place. Pakistan, India, Nigeria, China, Hong Kong. The list goes on. This is just the first 20, the top 20, so to speak, as if it were a privilege to be in that group. But there are many more places as well. And even as some of my compatriots from the U.S. indicated, even in the U.S. today, there is persecution against believers in Christ because of our convictions. Amazing. Well, persecution of Christians actually started a long time ago, from the very beginning, in fact. One of the first persecutors was a guy named Saul of Tarsus. You could guess we were going to talk about him from the scripture reading that we had a moment ago. I want to talk to you for a moment about his name. His Hebrew name, Saul, in Hebrew pronounced Shaul. Sounds a little bit like the Spanish, doesn't it? His Greco-Roman name, Paulus. So he didn't suddenly drop the name Saul when he became a Christian or when he started on his missionary journeys and Saul became Paul. That's not at all the way it was. He always had two names. Uh, in the Roman system, system, because he was a Roman citizen, he was Shaul Paulus. It's like I'm David Dixon. <laughs> Just like your thing. And he, in Spain, of course, there are those three names, uh, or a name and two surnames. Well, they had a, a, a prinomen and a nomen in the Latin culture, the, the Greco-Roman culture. So those were t Paul's two names. And, you know, I can never stick with one of those names. I'm going to try to call him Saul this morning because we're talking mostly about his pre-conversion experience. But I'm probably going to call him Paul too. So you just take for granted if I say Saul or Paul, I'm talking about the same guy. There were both his names. Okay. All right, we got that straightened out. We can move on. And the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion really begins in the synagogue of the freedmen. Whoops, went the wrong direction. There it is. In Jerusalem, Acts 6 tells us about it. Jews from Cilicia were known to gather there. And Cilicia just happens to be the province where Tarsus was. That's why we call him Saul of Tarsus. That's where he was from. So undoubtedly, there in Jerusalem, you could find him as well. There in that synagogue of the freedmen. So inevitably, he would have heard some of those messages that Stephen preached when he was giving witness to Jesus. 
And apparently, he was even there that day when Stephen was dragged before the Sanhedrin, accused of all kinds of trumped-up charges, such as speaking blasphemy against the temple or against the law of Moses. Actually, Stephen had just been trying to explain what Jesus meant with that phrase about destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Stephen was trying to help people understand that and then it was used against him the same way, same way it had been used against Jesus. So Saul was there hearing Stephen's defense and then he was present as that austere body, the Sanhedrin, suddenly went berserk and they rushed at Stephen like madmen, dragging him out of the city, stoning him to death. And you remember that was the occasion when Saul was there holding the cloaks, the coats of those who did the stoning. It suggests that Saul, who's described here as a young man, probably was not of sufficient age to participate in that act of stoning, or at least was not yet a member of the Sanhedrin, if he did become a member of the Sanhedrin. But he was evidently a person of confidence. That's the reason they were willing to leave their coats at his feet while they did the dirty work of the stoning. He was there. He witnessed Stephen's dying moments. He heard that dynamic testimony from Stephen's lips, forgiving his executioners even as he was receiving their stones against his body. This would come back to haunt Paul later in his life, and he would bear witness to the pain and sorrow he felt over having participated in that righteous man's death. So this struggle began in Saul's head at least since Acts chapter 6 when he heard Stephen preach. First at the synagogue, then at his defense, before the Sanhedrin. And what was the effect that that preaching produced in him? I think it was, first of all, a great defensiveness. He was defending, wanting to, to defend himself, wanting to defend the faith of his fathers. He was incensed by these Christians and the testimony they were giving. Their preaching was scandalous blasphemy. And he was filled with righteous indignation against them. So Acts 8 tells us that he, Paul, Saul started on a campaign against the Christians. He wanted to annihilate this movement. That was his goal. By his own testimony later on, he was quite brutal at this. In Galatians, he says... You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. That was his goal. First Timothy, he bears witness to the same thing. He says, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance. So Saul's identity was very solidly Jewish within the narrow confines of Pharisaic Judaism. And so his security was actually being challenged by these Christians, their scandalous message, this, this crucified Messiah that they were preaching about. 
just made him so angry. It made him sick because who could ever believe salvation would come from a disgraced man? That Jesus of Nazareth, he had been disgraced publicly. And now these Christians wanted to mm, refurbish his image and make him look good. It would never work. Not with Saul of Tarsus. In fact, Saul considered him to be accursed. Remember the passage from Deuteronomy 21, 23. It says, anybody who's been hung on a tree, accursed by God. Paul knew the law. He knew it backwards and forwards. He knew that the law said that man hung on that cross was accursed. He couldn't be. He could never be the Messiah. He could never save anyone. Couldn't even save himself. It was a totally incongruous message which he would only come to understand later on in his life after deep theological meditation when he would actually write in Galatians chapter 3 that what Jesus was doing was redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes that passage from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. And he did that so that the blessing of Abraham might come to all of us, even the Gentiles, the nations, that blessing being the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. Paul wouldn't understand that for a long time yet, though. So what do we make of that curse? How do we understand it? The law said it so clearly. What did that curse actually do to Jesus? What could it do? And we should have in mind that the law was not the only one cursing Jesus that day, was it? The soldiers, they were cursing him. The rulers, the Jewish rulers, they were cursing him. Even the two crucified beside him, or at least one of them, the, the testimony there is a little bit unsure, but at least one of them was also cursing him, saying, why don't you get us all out of this? The crowd, they were, everybody was throwing in their two cents to insult this man who had pretended to be the Messiah, the Savior. The question is, how did Jesus respond to that cursing? How did he react? Let's think about when Jesus would touch a leper. Remember? It was strictly forbidden to touch a leper because they were unclean. In fact, they had to walk around saying, unclean, unclean, so that people would keep their distance from them. And they were not allowed close to society but Jesus didn't obey that rule, that custom. He touched the lepers. And what happened? Did Jesus become unclean? That's what the law said. That's why they had to stay away. Because anybody they touched, they would contaminate them with their uncleanness. And yet, it didn't happen with Jesus. Instead, his purity and his health passed into the leper. And the leper was the one who was made clean by Jesus. The same happened with any disease or diseased person that Jesus touched, right? He didn't become unclean. His health 
his wholeness passed into them. Mm. Even a dead body. You know, not just anybody could touch a dead body. And if you did touch that dead body, you became unclean. And yet Jesus didn't have any problem touching the dead bodies. And they never made him unclean, but rather his life flowed into those dead bodies and made them alive. So that tells us that the power of his life and his holiness was so much stronger than any kind of possible contamination in this world. And that means that power, that curse of hanging on that tree had no power over him. His blessing was so much stronger than that curse. Jesus and his life, that's what was contagious. So on the cross, Jesus was actually intentionally allowing himself to be put under the curse of the law. Because he was identifying with you and me. You know, we're all under the curse of the law. Because we don't fulfill it. That puts us all under the curse. So Jesus was just getting under that curse just like he was born under the law, like all of us. He was expressing his solidarity with our awful plight. But it turns out he's the one who was stronger than all our enemies. And that's how he turned the curse of the cross into the greatest blessing of all history. You realize that, don't you? You know what that means. It is put well in an old Christmas carol that I hope you will sing with me. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Amen. So what is there in your life that has been like a curse to you? What is it? Can you name it? Can you point to it? Can you identify it? What has functioned like a curse against you? Is it a, some person that has just been a thorn in your flesh? Maybe it's your job or some other life circumstance. Or maybe it's a health issue, a physical condition that weighs on you like a curse. Or it could be any relationship that's problematic or any failure that you've experienced or some loss, some absence in your life, what is it that weighs on you like such a burden that it feels like a curse? What do we do with it except bring it to the foot of the cross? See what Jesus endured for our sakes precisely so that he could break the curse Every curse. Just look at the curse that he endured for us and was able to turn into the greatest blessing of all times. You think he can't do that with whatever is burdening you? Oh, yes, he can. Far as the curse is found. 
Saul didn't understand that yet. But he would. His day was coming. At this point in our story, he was still very angry. So he sought orders from the Sanhedrin to be able to take his campaign against the Christians farther afield. He wanted to go to Damascus. And Acts 9 says he was breathing out murderous threats. Can you feel how angry he is? Can you feel how worked up he is against these Christians? He's boiling over. He doesn't want to just get rid of them in Jerusalem. He wants to go anywhere there are Jewish synagogues and wipe them out. But what happened on the way as he was headed to Damascus? Well, you know, Jesus is going to appear to Saul right there on that road to Damascus. And suddenly Paul is going to be, begin to realize how mistaken he was. You see, he'd been trying very hard to maintain his identity on false premises. Trying to construct who he was and what his mission in life was based on his own limited criteria. It doesn't work. And so, right there on the road to Damascus, suddenly, this blinding light came from heaven. An authoritative voice began speaking to Paul, Saul. He fell on the ground, perhaps leaning on one, el one elbow, something like this. Now, a parenthesis here. You know, European painters invented the idea of Saul falling off a horse. In fact, it's a saying in Spanish. Se cayó del caballo. Like the Apostle Paul. Uh-uh. The painters got it wrong. Jewish rabbis didn't ride horses. That was for kings and nobles and high up, higher ups. Not Jewish rabbis. They walked. At least a pretense of humility. All right? So suddenly... He hears this voice is calling him by name and in a typical fashion in the Old Testament, repeating his name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Wow, that had to make him tremble in his sandals. Yeah, because you notice the connection here. Paul, Saul thinks he's persecuting these people, these Christians, and this voice says that he's actually persecuting him. Oh my goodness, this is scary. Mm, you see, this is still true today. When people are being persecuted for Jesus' sake, it's Jesus himself who suffers with them. Matthew 25, 40, he says, if you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. That's what Jesus would have said to Cain. Remember when Cain killed Abel? God knew all along that that's what humankind would do to him when he came personally. But we just demonstrated it. Cain just demonstrated it there with Abel. And every time Christians are being persecuted, Jesus says it especially, you're doing this to me. So Paul, Saul is feeling this terrible sense that he's on the wrong side of this issue. So he asks that voice for identification. Who are you, Lord? And he gets the full force of the truth in his face. 
as the voice answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wow. Paul is not just trembling in his sandals. He's trembling all over. This is a soul-shattering truth that is pounding into his brain and into his soul right here. He's thinking to himself, my goodness, this Jesus is alive. The Christians were right. They were telling the truth when they said he'd risen from the grave. He's, and he's really united with his people that I've been persecuting. He cannot be happy with my mission and what I've been doing. And he's clearly very powerful and somehow he's even very closely related to God himself. Wow. Saul thinks maybe this is the end for me. When he tells this testimony years later before a crowd of hostile Jews, he actually add, he recalls having said, What shall I do, Lord? This is over in chapter 22 of Acts. What shall I do? And so the voice comes, you shall get up, go into the city, and wait until you are told what to do. So he gets up, and he can't see. Even though his eyes are open, he's blind. That light from heaven has just blinded him. But of course, it's a blinding that will enable him to see what he could not see before, isn't it? Has to be led by the hand. Another evidence, there's no horse in the picture. They would have just plopped him back up on the horse and the horse would have carried him, right? All right, they led him by the hand into Damascus. He's going to spend the next three days in that darkness. Can you imagine? He's not going to eat. He's not going to drink. He's just fasting. He's trying hard to pray. But there's this huge crisis that's going on in his heart. He feels so bad, so repentant over how wrong he's been, how many innocent people he has caused to suffer, how many blasphemies he has uttered against the Lord of glory. He cannot fathom the depths of his sin. You see, whenever we try to construct our identity apart from the God who made us, Apart from his way and his truth, we flounder, we make a mess, we get it all wrong. It's why moderns today feel so empty, generally. Because we don't want to put ourselves under God's authority because we might be deprived of some goal, some prize that we are obsessed with. And you know what the fruit of it is? The fruit is that we are the, known as the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated generation in history. That's the fruit of it. When you determine to know yourself apart from God, this is the result. Our society is demonstrating it. Only in turning to our Creator as He came to us in Jesus Christ can that awful condition be rectified. You see, Saul had stumbled on the stumbling block of Jesus' suffering and death. That can't be God's way. Oh, no. His reasoning. How could this happen to someone claiming to be the Messiah? That's not the Messiah we wanted. 
So what did Paul do? He imposed his own criteria. That is our default mode, you know. When God's way doesn't make sense to us, we just sort of turn and say, no, I'm going to do it this way. It makes more sense to me. It's the same problem that's going on today in our world in general. Did you know that new religions are on the rise all over the place? Maybe you've never had to fill out one of these forms uh, or part of a questionnaire asking about your religion. But today, when people have to fill one of these out, there are two categories that are especially prominent. The first one there, none. The nuns are growing. Not the N-U-N's, <laughs> as in the religious nuns, but the N-O-N-E, apostrophe S. The ones who say, none. Religion, none. Not for me. No thanks. That one is growing. More and more people are saying, none. No religion. Don't want anything to do with religion. Or, there's another category down there at the bottom. You know, SBNR? New category for some of us, huh? Well, here's what it means. Spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual. Of course I'm spiritual. Just look at me. Yeah, you know, how I walk, how I talk, how I, etc. But religious? Oof, that's a bad word. That's passe. Who'd want to be religious anymore? Well, that's the world we live in today. Mix and match traditions according to your own preferences. That's the best way. Just a remix. After all, it's about the energy that connects everything. That's a very spiritual concept. Yeah? Just connect with the energy wherever you find it and make your own religion. Although it's not religion anymore. It's just spirituality. Physicist Andrew Fellows calls it not neo-paganism, but ego-paganism. Ego-paganism. He says it's where a person's own interiority is ultimate reality. Your own interiority, that's ultimate reality. Philosophically, it's known as solipsism. It's been around a long time, actually. Where reality is grounded only in your own consciousness. That's the only thing you can be sure is real. There is no objective reality out there that you can count on. And consequently, there's also no motivation to do anything for anybody except for me. You get it? It's a very narrow viewpoint. It's a dead-end street. From the biblical viewpoint... Human identity is grounded in someone who is not of this world. Did you know that? You cannot find your identity just within the factors of this world. God put his image in us, in you just as surely as in me and in every human being, whether they're Christians or not. They have that witness inside them, God's image stamped on their insides which means we are all brothers and sisters in this world all of us humans eh? we should have that in mind all of us need to be born again but we are all children of the same father 
even though some of these children, according to the Bible, are children of the devil. How can you be both? We'll figure that out another day, all right? This God who put his image in every human being is the one who broke into Saul's destructive worldview that day on the road to Damascus. God said, okay, enough. Because God's image in Paul was so terribly blurred by his rebellion. And it was only getting more blurred the more Saul kicked against the goad. That's how he expressed it in Acts 22. So, you know, that's true of us too. The image of God is blurred in us by our rebellion, our idolatry, our sin, until we turn to Christ. And then, little by little, God is trying to remake us in His image so that we act and look like Jesus, so we respond like Jesus. This means nothing in this world can fully secure your identity because the one who established your identity is not of this world. He's from outside. He is beyond this world. He's not limited to this world. So he can intervene in this world. And we were made to be his agents, his ambassadors, his representatives here. But we threw that vocation away saying, we'd rather do it ourselves. We'd rather do it on our own. That's why God came in Jesus. So that means no matter how much money you make in this world, it's not going to help you know who you are and what your mission is. Right? doesn't matter how much money. You can go on a thousand adventures in this life. You can experience everything there is to experience. Didn't Solomon try that? Book of Ecclesiastes. And it was all vanity, he said. You can get to do everything you ever wished for. And it will not help you know who you are. You can have hundreds of sexual escapades, if that's your thing. You can fulfill your wildest fantasies. And you will not be able to secure your identity. It will not help. I mean, after all, what does Jesus say in the Gospel of Luke? What does it profit you to gain the whole world if in the process all you do is lose your own soul? So that means nothing in nature, nothing in science can really tell you who you are. That's animism, naturalism, materialism, behaviorism, empiricism. Oh, none of those are going to tell you who you are. Nothing in philosophy. Maybe rationalism, romanticism, positivism, solipsism, nihilism. Nothing in philosophy is going to help you know who you are. Politics, maybe. Communism, socialism, nationalism, capitalism, feminism, transgenderism. It's not going to happen. You will not come to know who you are and what your mission is through anyone except Jesus. He is the key, and he has the key right there in his cross. It was a stumbling block for the Apostle Paul. That means he 
tripped on it and he got stuck there and he couldn't go forward because it didn't make sense to him. But scripture teaches that stumbling block when, you, when your eyes are opened to faith, it becomes the cornerstone. It becomes the rock of ages. It becomes the foundation of your life. It tells you who you really are. That's what Saul discovered that day. That apart from Jesus, he could never find himself. He is our true basis for value and worth. So we need to break the chains, get rid of the lies, call on Jesus. So when Paul did this, his life exploded with grace and truth. And he discovered that his identity was not tied up in his ethnic identity or in his Jewish religion. Those were just factors of his, his historical existence. But who he really was and how much he was valued that came from God in Christ, just like his purpose, his mission in life. He stopped being a terrorist from that point when Ananias came in and blessed him, gave his testimony, prayed for him. The scales fell from his eyes and he could see not just physically but as he had never seen before because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling him. Well, of course, he then went on to bear witness for Christ and was persecuted for it. Paul himself, the persecutor, became the persecuted. But he became also the model missionary and preacher of the gospel, impacting history for 2,000 years of Christian history. His testimony has continued to reverberate and to impact generation after generation. So you see, as Saul pursued those early Christians, what he discovered was that, that Jesus was actually pursuing him for his life task. That's what you and I have to discover. Jesus is pursuing you, every one of us. He is pursuing us, seeking to get us to pursue him as our primary goal in life. And when we do, wow, fireworks, grace, and truth will begin to dominate our lives. You may not have a Damascus Road experience. We're not all called to have such a dramatic conversion. It may be something very simple and quiet, but it's no less real. In fact, I'd like to close with the story of another man who began very negative toward Christianity. Not quite a persecutor, but he would have gotten there. His name was Richard Wurmbrandt. Our Romanian friends here will know him well. He was born in Bucharest, 1909, to a Jewish-Romanian family. In his youth, he started out as a communist. And during that time, he gave this challenge to the God who he believed did not exist. He said, God, I know surely that you do not exist, but if perchance you do exist, which I contest, it is not my duty to believe in you. It is your duty to reveal yourself to me. What do you think God did in his life? 
he said, I'll take the challenge. He didn't last long in the communist movement, got disillusioned with it. He met another Jewish Romanian whom he married, Sabina. They married in 1936. In 1938, they were on a vacation in a remote mountain village. And there was an old German carpenter in that village who had been praying for the opportunity to witness to a Jew because a Jew had saved his life when he was ill. God gave him the opportunity with Richard and his wife Sabina. And he gave them a Bible and he witnessed to them about what this Bible meant and how it showed God's good purpose for his chosen people and how he still loved them even today. And he accompanied that Bible with his prayers. Richard Wurmbrandt testifies that he had read the Bible once before and it didn't mean a thing to him. But this time, it's like the pages were on fire. And later he realized it was because of that old German carpenter who was praying for him through every page that he read. Well, that book just burned a hole in his heart. He didn't have a Damascus Road experience, but Jesus reached out and called him from the pages of the book. Soon he and Sabina both trusted Christ, embraced him as Lord. So then when the Nazis invaded Romania, 1940, Richard and Sabina didn't take long before they were beginning a ministry to their people, to the Jews, since they were the object of persecution on the part of the Nazis. They preached in bomb shelters. They rescued Jewish children from ghettos. Again and again, they were arrested and beaten. A number of their relatives lost their lives in concentration camps, but they persisted, and the Lord preserved their lives because he had more purpose for them. In 1944, it was the communists who invaded, took over Romania, but Richard just continued preaching. He preached to the Russian troops as bold as ever, and he resisted all the pressure to swear loyalty to the atheistic regime that had been installed there in Romania. So in 1948, it was no surprise that he was kidnapped by the secret police, spent 14 years in prison, suffering horrific tortures, brutality, especially what they liked to do to him was to beat the soles of his feet all the way to the bone till the bone was exposed, beating them until they bled so that he could hardly walk, obviously, afterward. For three years of that prison imprisonment, he was in solitary confinement, seeing no one, hearing no one, nothing but pure darkness, momentarily broken when they would pass him some food. He regrets that only one person was one to the Lord during that time of his solitary confinement. The man in the next cell one day began knocking on the wall with Morse code. And of course, Richard Wurmbrandt understood that, and so he began talking back, knocking on the wall, and pretty soon he was telling him about Jesus, and soon after, the man was accepting Jesus right there in their solitary confinement. Only that one man 
in three years he regrets. Can you imagine? Do we feel the shame? Well, during his time in communist prison, there was one guard who was especially cruel, who loved torturing him and his fellow inmates. But one day that guard fell out of grace, fell from grace with his superiors. By a twist of fate, that guard was suddenly a prisoner among those that he had formerly mistreated so terribly. Most of them were ready to let him have it. He deserved it. He had asked for it. Richard defended him. He said, no. He ministered to him. He showed him the kindness and love of the Savior. Remember Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Say it with me. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Well, that's what happened to that guard. He was so vulnerable. And this man whom he had beat and insulted and done all kinds of cruel things to, who was so kind to him, it broke his heart. He couldn't resist. And he gave himself to Jesus Christ as well. In 1964, finally Richard was ransomed from prison by some Christians in the West for $10,000. And the underground church there in Romania insisted, you must leave Romania. They'll just arrest you again. Leave and go be a voice for us in the West. Tell them what communism is actually doing to us. So he did. And in 1967, he founded the organization known as the Voice of the Martyrs, known today as the Voice of the Martyrs, promoting prayer and aid to the persecuted church. He's continued with that mission until he died in 2001. But in 1990, he and his wife were finally able to return for a visit to their beloved Romania. They preached the gospel there to thousands, many were converted to the Lord because of their testimony. Even today, the name of Richard Wurmbrandt in Romania is esteemed among the top ten who have influenced that nation. They both died early this century, Richard and his wife, but the ministry they started continues. And I want to tell you, we have people right here in this congregation who have been severely persecuted because of their faith. I cannot say anything about them in a public forum, but they are a living example to us of how God is still teaching His people how to be faithful under pressure. The least you and I can do is dedicate some moments of prayer on behalf of those people. It's the mark of a true believer. We pursue the God who is pursuing us. No matter what the cost, with a growing sense of His presence in our lives. And he, has, he puts in us an insatiable desire to become more like Him in character, in word, in deed. He's the one who sets our hearts ablaze with His message of love. He's the one who rescues us from ourselves so we can fulfill the mission that He's called us to. Would you pray for that? In this moment, Holy Savior, you are so kind to us. 
And your kindness does indeed lead us to repentance. Holy Savior, thank you for your servant, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle. Thank you for the witness that he bore so faithfully, so powerfully, that it has impacted every generation since his time. Holy Savior, you're pursuing us as well. Teach us to pursue you with all our hearts. Teach us to let you be the center, the foundation of our identity, of our mission in life, so that we may be ready to serve you even if we are called to suffer. And we remember those who are suffering because of their love for you, because of their testimony for you. Blessed Savior, be close to them in this time. Give us a heart for them that we may aid them with our prayers and with whatever other help we can provide. Blessed Savior, be in our midst right now to teach us to pray. In Jesus' name.